0: That you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that we can come this morning in the midst of chaos and turmoil and uh, viruses and frustration. Uh, We can turn to you and put all of our faith and trust in you, O Lord, knowing that you are king, knowing that you rule this world, that this is your kingdom, that we are a part of your kingdom, you're called your people, and that we can trust completely in your truth and your word that we have heard here today today. Pierce our hearts, O Lord. Renew our minds. Renew the strength and faith that we have in You. And be with me, a broken, humble vessel, Your preacher. Use me, O Lord, to communicate the words of Christ. For it's in His holy and most precious and glorious name we pray all these things. Amen. I'm not a baker, Uh, I don't claim to be a very good cook, I definitely don't claim to know how to bake anything. So when I read this passage at first, I had to look up what leaven was and why leaven was important and why it's actually used in bread making. And here's what I determined. Here's what I found out. Some of you may already know this and you can tell me more later and uh, school me a little bit and that's fine. But what I learned was leaven is really just an agent uh, that they infuse or put into the dough uh, before the bread is baked. And the purpose is really to fluff it up, to lighten it up. It can be some sort of chemical agent, it can be air. uh, And, you know, it made sense after I started reading and and learning what leaven was, because, uh, you know, when you cut a slice of bread, you see those little air pockets in there, and that is a result of leaven in fluffing and uh, lightening up the bread. We also know from the Old Testament that uh, the unleavened bread was used and commanded by God in Exodus 12, 18 to the Jewish people in the day of Passover. They were then to use it uh, for celebrating the Passover. Um, And, you know, you may consider why would they have unleavened bread. Well, unleavened bread then was because they weren't allowed... Um, to, they weren't going to have the time, God wasn't going to give them the time to allow the bread to rise, to sit out in the air, the dough to sit out in the air and then would rise and they would be able to break, uh, bake the bread and use it. But no, that wasn't going to be the case. As a matter of fact, God says you're not going to have time to allow it to, to rise. And so leaven then was not used at Passover. What else do we know about leaven and why is this important? Well, Leaven, by definition, is any one of a number of substances used in doughs and batters that cause a foaming action, gas bubbles, that lightens and softens the mixture. What it does then is it causes the dough, in a sense, to to break down, making it light and fluffy, soft. I don't know about you, but in the context of bread, that's probably a good thing. But in the context of faith... Or in the context of the church, it's not a good thing. That's why Paul uses the phrase that he does in this passage. The phrase that he mentions in verse 9 a little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, when it's used in bread, it's a good thing. The whole lump of dough is going to become soft, it's going to become weak and light. But in the context of the church, in which Paul is speaking to the church in Galatia here, it's not necessarily a good thing, is it? That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, a little bit of this teaching on circumcision and this idea of the law being superior to the gospel and preaching something other than the cross, if that is infused into the church, then it begins to weaken the faith of the believers. So Paul is using this illustration, and I think it's a great illustration for us to think about this morning, and the fact that their faith, the faith of the Galatians is being softened and weakened because they are turning away from the truth, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, as we have mentioned in the past previous weeks, and turning toward this idea of circumcision or adding something to the Gospel. As if the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ is not sufficient for salvation. And look at how he addresses the Galatians in these verses. Verse 7, you were running well, he said. In other words, much like the race analogy, you were doing wonderful things. You were running, you were uh, going well in your faith and in your belief in Jesus Christ. You were following Him as a wonderful disciple. He even says, who hindered you from obeying the truth. So they at least were obeying the truth of the Gospel. He said, it says in verse 8, this persuasion is not from Him who calls you. In other words, they're believing in something other than what God has commanded, what God has seen fit to provide for them, the Gospel, the truth. And He says also that in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. So Paul still has confidence that at some point this church in Galatia started with the gospel and they were moving in the right direction, but somehow this man or these men, these, this group of uh, circumcision uh, proponents were coming in and turning their hearts away from the gospel. They were now being hindered in their belief. Look at verse 7. Paul is charging them, who hindered you from obeying the truth? They were now turning away from the grace of God as offered through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They were unsettled. They were wavering in their faith. What they believed to be true and knew that Paul had taught them, They, they were now wavering their hearts were unsettled. Their minds were unsettled. They were believing something different. They were thinking something, something different. And so God, Paul here is challenging them to think about God's truth, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to warn the one or ones who seem to be drawing them away from this truth. He says that they n- will bear the penalty for what they are doing. And then at the very end, we have this passage we'll deal, we'll deal with in just a second. This verse 11, um, 12, Sorry. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Wow. Let's focus first on what Paul means by a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In the, in the context of the church, it's fairly clear that when this... Uh, anti-gospel thought and belief enters into the church, then eventually, over time, this little leaven will leaven the whole lump. The whole church then will turn from the gospel to this legalism, this righteousness by works through circumcision. And this man and these men who were doing this, they were a negative influence And Satan then was using this to attack the church in Galatia. Satan was using this as an opportunity to address the Galatians and to try to get them to turn from the Gospel to something else. Church today is no different. We often find ourselves confronted with something or some things, someone, a group even, who may be trying to turn us away from the Gospel. Maybe there are individuals in the church who uh, focus on things other than Jesus Christ and His work. And they are distracting, and, and Satan can use these things to turn the people of God away. Satan is very crafty. And he loves to attack the church. He loves to attack God's people. And he loves to come in and turn our hearts and our minds away from the Gospel towards something else. And this morning I want us to see uh, some ways that he does this. Paul mentions here and elsewhere some ways that Satan comes in. And that this leaven, if left unchecked, will leaven the whole lump. Paul does say in verse 10 that he does have confidence in the Lord. That you will take no other view than mine. But he's still concerned and he's still worried That the one who is troubling them to turn away is being used by Satan. You see, first, sometimes Satan uses sin in the life of the believer. Sometimes Satan uses sin in our own life to turn us away from the gospel or to focus somewhere else other than Jesus Christ. You see, the whole purpose of, uh, I think, for us to remain in this life being sanctified and growing into Christ and, and rem- having sin removed from our life. The whole point of that is to experience forgiveness of, from Jesus Christ. But if we are uh, willing to leave that sin unchecked and, and unrepentant, then it will be a part of Satan's ploy to attack us individually and corporately as a body of believers. and. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says something very similar to what he says here in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. He's addressing the boasting of the Corinthians. The individual person who is proud and, and lifting themselves up and boasting in their own work and their own theology. And he says, you do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says the very same thing that he says here that if left unchecked, this sin Satan may just use and seize the opportunity to attack the believer and to attack the church. One of my late professors, Simon J. Kistemacher, told us one time of a wonderful story. (laughs) I say it's wonderful in its illustration, not necessarily in how it came about. But as he was pastoring a church, he was on a session, and two of the elders became uh, somewhat miffed at one another, uh, and over time, as they continued to wrestle with uh, the subject at hand, uh, Dr. Kistenbacher reminds us that uh, those individuals became somewhat enemies of one another. They, they actually became so irate and mad that they parted ways. They left a meeting and, and just left mad, and, and nothing was resolved. And so being the pastor and taking on the role of mediator, Dr. Kistemaker brings these two elders together. He goes and he picks one up and he says, we need to go and we need to fix this. And so he takes one elder to the other elder's house. And the first elder that uh, is riding with Dr. Kistemaker, they come in and they're welcomed. And Dr. Kistemaker says, you know, we must be reconciled. We need to work through this. And he was elated at how quickly they were able to move through this process of forgiveness. And both men left saying, I forgive you and I forgive you. And time went on. At the next session meeting, Dr. Kishmacher noticed that there was still unresolved conflict. There was unresolved sin in both of the men's lives. They were still at each other. They were still attacking one another, biting and devouring one another in their speech and in their conduct over the same subject. And Dr. Kistermacher was scratching his head trying to figure out, I don't understand why they are doing this. I don't understand. They both said that they forgave one another. And then it clicked. See, Dr. Kistermacher realized that they had approached this from the wrong standpoints. Both men were trying to deal with a sin in someone else's life, not in the sin in their own life. And so that's what was going on here. They were dealing with their own sin. If they were dealing with their own sin, this conversation would have been different. And so Dr. Kistemacher brought them back together and brings them in and says, listen, here's what needs to happen. We need to work through reconciliation and we need to work through forgiveness. And so He comes and and He brings them in again and He shares with them, no, we're dealing not with your neighbor's sin, but with your sin. And the meaning was completely different. And as they prayed together and left, the statement that was said sounded much different. It started with, will you forgive me? And each elder forgiving one another. Dealing with their own sin in their own life. You see, until we deal with our own sin, until we are repentant of our own sin, until we're really ready to recognize our own sin, we may be doing damage to our brother and sister in Christ. We may be doing damage to the church. And Satan will use this in the lives of the believer. But not only does Satan use the sin in our own life, sometimes Satan uses sinful men in our personal lives, doesn't he? We all uh, probably grew up in a household where our parents uh, told us to not hang around certain people because they were bad people, right? And so we have this idea that uh, we need to have good friends. Paul, in, again, in 1 Corinthians, even mentions this in Corinthians 15, verse 33. He says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul here is addressing the Corinthians and he's saying, listen, you're hanging around bad people. But you know what? Paul doesn't say get rid of those bad people. What Paul says is deal with your own sin. Back to the first point. But let us not be confused. Let us not think that somehow those around us who aren't Christians, who are bad people, won't somehow impact how we think, what we feel, what we believe, and have some sort of influence on our life if we don't deal with the sin that it causes within us. In other words, we need to be very careful and understand that... uh, People around us can have an influence on us, and it's not always good. One of the shows that I like to watch is, uh, I think, called FBI Takedowns. Um, it's a show about the FBI and some uh, ways that they have to take down criminals and, and organized uh, rings, cr- crime rings, and these kind of things. And one of the stories that I watch is about a neighborhood in Boston there seems to be uh, this neighborhood that you grow into a family of crime. That there, there is just an embedded uh, criminal uh, mind and, and undertone in which people grow up and the expectation is not that you would grow up and, and go to college or be something great, be a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. No, you're going to grow up in whatever organized crime or whatever crime the family is involved in you're going to be involved with that and you started very early age being indoctrinated and groomed and prepped for that it kind of reminds me if you've seen the movie sing the kids movie uh, sing where johnny the gorilla uh, johnny was a part of this family in which uh, he was used in crime sprees and he all he wanted to do is find a career in singing but this neighborhood in Boston, would, it, this, this series, this show, revolved around these families and, and showed how they were hitting armored trucks, how they were hitting banks, how they were getting real crafty and, and bringing other people in. They even had a, a code of silence where if the cops came in and started asking questions, even if you weren't involved, they would not answer the question. And there's this influence from family and neighbors that starts at a very early age. And because of that, usually when they grow up and become able to be involved, they become involved in this code of silence and the crime spree in which their family has participated for years. So Paul is right when he says "A bad company ruins good morals. It's the same in the church. That there are men and women in the church sometimes who aren't necessarily interested in building the kingdom of God. And Satan uses them to attack individuals and the church. Sometimes the people we hang around, the people in our families, the people in our uh, circles, are spheres of influence. Sometimes they are used by Satan to draw us away from the truth of the Gospel. Maybe it's someone that you know well, someone you grew up with. And over time, this idea of the leaven, leavening the whole lump, they're impacting you, they're involved in your life. And Satan can use that to move you away from the Gospel. But not only does Satan use the sin in your life, sinful people around you, but he also uses sinful men and women in the fellowship of the church. Now this may be a shocker to many of you, um, and it may be something that we need to be very careful of articulating and getting too uh, focused on and wrapped around the axle on, but there are unsaved people in the church. There are people in the church that Still continue in sin. If you read any of Paul's apostles, uh, uh, Paul's epistles, sorry, you will see that he often refers to the sin in the church, doesn't he? Corinthians? And in Galatians. And even the writer of Hebrews brings up the, this very fact. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 15 says, "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. So there's an individual and a corporate aspect of this root of bitterness that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to here. That this root of bitterness can come up in an individual's life and that just permeates through the, throughout the church. And it infiltrates the hearts and the minds and the people who were uh, focused on the truth and believed the Gospel of Jesus Christ can, can somehow be... Um, tweaked in their heart and in their mind, Satan uses that to begin to um, turn them from the truth. John Calvin speaks to this in uh, his Institutes on Christian Religion. He has a whole section on what it means to worship and to have church with the believer and the unbeliever alike. He believes that the church will always consist of what he calls the wheat and the tares. This is a very biblical explanation that we read about in that parable from Jesus Himself. The kingdom of, of heaven is like and the wheat and the tares. And we, what do we know about the wheat and the tares? We know, as Calvin rightly points out, that Scripture teaches that until Christ returns and that great harvest t- takes place, that there will be wheat and tares. And that includes the church. The church is full of people who are wheat and tares. And until until Christ comes in and, and separates the two, and the chaff is taken away, until then, we will have folks in our midst. Yes, in the church, sitting in the pew with us who may or may not be believers of Jesus Christ. That may surprise you today. It may astound us that people would sit in the pew and not believe, that they would hear the Gospel and not believe. And Calvin goes on to say he believes that this is a part of the life of the church and the life of the believer because what it does is it forces us to practice forgiveness. It forces us to understand the benefits of forgiveness and God's grace for us. You can read it on your own to understand how he came to that conclusion, but I believe he's right. And here's his proof. The proof is in the Lord's Prayer in which we think about the Lord's Prayer that we are to daily pray the Lord's Prayer. We are to, uh, on a regular basis, pray the Lord's Prayer. And what does the Lord's Prayer say? That we are to forgive us our debts, that we are asking Jesus again to forgive us our debts, or if you prefer the version, trespasses, our sins. We're asking Jesus on a regular basis to forgive us our sins. In other words, we are practicing this living in God's grace, this forgiveness of Jesus Christ offered to us. And yes, sometimes we need to have sinful men in our presence who move us away from the Gospel of Jesus Christ so that we may turn around and experience the grace of God through forgiveness of sins. Now, as Paul rightly reminds us, we don't continue to sin so that grace may abound. No, that's not the point. But we just need to be aware that Satan uses these opportunities to move us away from the truth. Calvin, in the Institute's quotes, St. Augustine, and he says this, But to godly and peaceable men, Augustine gives this advice. Mercifully to correct what they can, patiently to bear and lovingly to be well and mourn what they cannot. Until God either amends or corrects or in the harvest uproots the tares and winnows the chaff. Satan uses various means to attack the Gospel in your life. You see, Satan's... Main purpose is to uproot the gospel and what you believe and what you know is truth, what God has shared with you is truth. That's why Paul plainly says that you have been hindered. If you're in the church in Galatia, you've been hindered from obeying the truth. How many of us have been hindered from obeying the truth because Satan attacks us in various ways, in some of these ways? Now, these aren't the exhaustive, this is not the exhaustive list of ways that um, Satan may attack us. But these are the ones that Paul is addressing in this idea of the leaven and the leaven, leavening the whole lump. Now, how do we respond to these attacks by Satan? You see, I want to propose there are two wrong ways, and what we would see from Paul a right way. The first may be that we withdraw. What if, when something Uh, happens in our life and sin becomes a part of our life what if we uh, rather than um, lived with it and lived in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ what if we tried really hard to not sin what if we did our very best to not even get ourselves in that predicament by withdrawing now this would be bordering on legalism It very well may present itself as a legalistic way, an approach. Rather than falling to sin, don't even go there. Don't even put yourself in a place of temptation. I mean, in a sense, we could very well become very monastic. We could all be monks and remove ourselves from the world. And we may avoid such things. And in the case of our friends or our family that's around us, you know, we could just shun all of them. We could just remove them from our life, so there is no temptation. Satan cannot use that weapon or those weapons against us. There are no longer any bad influences. Kind of like our parents taught us to get rid of those friends, right? And in the case of uh, people in the church that aren't Christians, well, we could always just leave the church. You know, what if what if I just left the church of where there are bad and sinful men that Satan uses to attack the church. The whole point of Calvin writing in the Institutes was about this very problem. People leaving the church looking for the more holy, the more pure. And the reality is it doesn't exist. The church is filled with godly and ungodly men. So withdrawal at the end of the day is not a solution that Paul offers here. He doesn't tell the church in Galatia, hey, leave. Get out of there. Run away. Another solution might be to fight back. If we're not going to withdraw, we could fight back. We could go back and address each one of these by fighting. We could look at every sin in our life and we could fight it. We could somehow think that it's within our own power and our own energy and ability to fight the sin. That we don't need the Holy Spirit. We don't need God's involvement. We just do it ourselves. We just pick ourselves up. We just like kind of like we do any of our work, maybe. Whatever your vocation is, maybe you do this on your own. You don't need others' help. Well, the reality is removal of sin in our life is not a one-man job, and it is definitely not something that we can do on our own. And so when we do this, what we convey, if we are to fight the sin in our life, is we may end up going to the extreme. And believing in our own heart and mind that if we just work hard enough, we can remove this sin. No. This negates the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in our life. And then, what about our friends and our family? Rather than shunning them and, and, and pushing them away, what if we just fought them and argued with them and, and beat them into submission so that they may come into the kingdom of God? Well, the end result there will be Alienation. You will alienate them. There's no way that if you continue to fight, that they will see the grace of Jesus Christ, unless God does a miracle. And what about the church? What if we just fought everybody that we disagreed with or we thought was evil or we thought was not a Christian? What if we just fought with them? Now, I'm not talking about church discipline. Discipline. I'm talking about fighting. Picking fights. Pointing uh, out where they're wrong. Throwing stones. Thinking that we are right and they are wrong. That they're somehow evil people. And they may be sinful people. They may be used by Satan. But it's not an excuse to always fight with them. So neither withdrawal nor fighting is a good solution. And I propose to you that what Paul has in mind here is something greater and better, and it's something that we as Christians should do. Notice that Paul doesn't say anything about fighting them. Paul doesn't say anything about withdrawing. But what does Paul say? He says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, at first glance, this doesn't really seem like a very good solution, but I want us to see a couple things here. The first is this, that Paul is very uh, sarcastically using these terms, these words. He's, he's putting out there this to the circumcision party the idea of emasculating themselves or cutting themselves off from the church. He says, I wish they would cut themselves off. So neither a withdrawal nor a fight, but really something greater. Why can Paul say this? What is it that Paul believes? Well, Paul believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. That God is sovereign and providentially working in the life of the church. That He has the wheat and the tares worshiping together and gathered together and fellowshipping together. And his prayer here really is that there is a cutting off of these individuals from the body of Christ. Not something done by the individuals other than the person himself. And I think what Paul really has in mind here underneath is that somehow they'll get caught in their own trap and that they will be cut off from the body of believers. John Calvin, um, in his Institutes, again on this very section, says that, "...but if the Lord declares that the church is to labor under this evil, to be weighed down with a mixture of the wicked until the day of judgment, they are vainly seeking a church besmirched with no blemish." He's addressing those that are leaving the church looking for something more holy. He says, no, if if God hasn't established this way and, and ordained this way, and it's providential that God has evil men in our midst, evil men in our family, evil men in our sphere of influence. If that's the case, then leaving the church isn't the answer. Removing them from your life isn't necessarily the answer. As a matter of fact, Paul says elsewhere about the unbelieving husband, And he tells the uh, believing wife to stay with the unbelieving husband because you don't know what God can do and the grace that He may show. And so it's not a withdrawal and it's not a fight. No, what I propose is what Paul kind of has under um, the covers here is believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and His Lordship. That Jesus Christ is the King and the head of His church. Our job as Christians isn't to pick up every fight. It's not to withdraw from the world. No, it's to trust in Jesus Christ. To put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if He so chooses to allow us to be in the circumstances we're in, the church that we're in, until He comes again and the great harvest is before us, then our job is to simply believe and trust in Him. To believe and trust that Jesus has all things under control, that He is Lord and King. Anything else, withdraw and fight, actually tries to supplant His kingship and His lordship. You're not saying that I believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that He has it all under control. As a matter of fact, you may be saying that at the end of the, the harvest, at the great day of judgment, and maybe Jesus needs my help. Maybe Jesus needs something from me. And that's not at all the case, is it? We know that the church will not be destroyed. We know that Satan is not victorious. Even though he uses these and many other things in our life during this time, it doesn't mean that Jesus has forsaken us. No. Rather, it is an opportunity for us to grow in grace, to live in forgiveness, to turn again to the truth of the Gospel in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so maybe one of those scenarios is right for you today. Maybe one of those scenarios is, is where you currently are. As churches begin to come back, you think, ah, I don't really want to go back to the church because there's that individual there. Now what if I just stayed home and, with, and withdrew from that individual or those people? Or I don't want to deal with the sin in my own life. If I stay home and, and don't go back to church, well then, well, then nobody will see my sin and no one will know. Paul does not deny that little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he doesn't say to withdraw or to fight the leaven. What he says is to truly trust in the Lord. Let things play out. And Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, who is the protector of the church, will remove individuals from the church. He will remove individuals from our life, He will remove the sin through forgiveness in our life. So the answer is turning to the truth, turning to the gospel, turning to Jesus Christ once again. Trusting in Him, having faith in Him that He has all things under His control. Trust in the Lord today. Put your faith in King Jesus and let us persevere until He comes again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, for this time. We thank You for this encouragement. We thank You for the words of the Apostle Paul. That he is so trusting and believing in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in His work, in His accomplishments, not only for our salvation, but in our life today. That there are things beyond our control. There are things that we are not to fight. There are things that we are not to withdraw from. But Lord, may we live in these circumstances and turning to You, putting our faith and our trust in You, O Lord. And maybe rather than fighting, You are using us to draw people to Yourself. Rather than withdrawal, You may use our situation and our circumstances to draw people the people of God, together. So, Lord, we lift our circumstances up to You and put our complete faith and trust in You, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His holy name we pray. a name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening and hearing the Word of God. I pray that you are encouraged by it and that you are strengthened by it and that you place again your faith in none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May He be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen.